What's one thing about schools that nobody's talking about that they should be? I think that this is a sticking point I have from the pandemic. I think there's a lot of wasted time during a school day. So I say that as a mom to three sons and two stepsons, that they would come home from school and they have sat for most of the day. So we move to block scheduling, you know, as a state and then as a nation, like most schools are on a block schedule. My youngest son is applying to go to actually the a Catholic military school. He asked if he could apply to it. I asked him why. And a bunch of his friends go there. They're very, it's a very athletic school. But he said they're on a seven period day. They're in class for 50 minutes. They're outside for two blocks a day. And that was really appealing to him. And I think, and I, not to stereotype, but boys and girls at different ages of development learn differently. And I think school was designed like when I walk by a classroom and the class is in rows, everyone's sitting there. I'm miserable looking at them and I'm 46 years old. How do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning? Come with me as I interview top performers and delve into key areas of life. Habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. My guest today has over two decades of teaching experience. Part of the reason that I'm so excited to talk to her today is because of the multitude of touch points she has with the educational system. Having taught public, private, individual, elementary, secondary, university, and adult education, she's finishing the final semester of her educational doctorate at VCU, and beyond that, also has three teenage boys that are in the middle of their educational journeys. On top of all that, she still finds time to run a book club, host extensive family gatherings, and catch a weekly high school ball game featuring one of her sons on the court. Megan Sheriff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. So we talked a little bit before we hit the record button of you moving from high school education into higher ed. But in an honest an assessment as you can give me, what are the state of kids in the public school education system right now? Wow, it's a loaded question. I think if you had asked me this question three years ago, it would have been a much different answer than it is in a post-pandemic world. I think our students are coping. I think that they are still adjusting in a lot of ways to some of the gaps and some of, I mean, quite honestly, the trauma that students experience being out of like a social network um, for those really pivotal times in their lives during the pandemic. So it really depends where you are in the country. I think it depends if you're in a small school. I think it depends if you're in a large school, what type of familial support you have at home. But our schools are are struggling in a lot of different ways. There are definitely points that, you know, places where schools are, are successful and doing well. But I think for the most part, there's a lot of reform that's going to have to happen in the coming year. And you're moving out of a high school where your boys were. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you noticed in the system or in the school that you were in that was helping to manage some of that overall struggle and helping kids readjust back to being in the classrooms? Yeah, our county was kind of unique in that we were one of the only districts in Virginia that didn't close through the pandemic. So we had teachers that worked right through the pandemic. I actually was in the virtual school. I have multiple grownsists. So for health reasons, I stayed home um, with my husband, who's also a teacher, and we have five children between us. So, but our school system stayed open. So for example, in my husband's district, 
they were closed well over a year. So I think some of the experiences that he has are vastly different than I had, you know, just 10 miles down the road. So I would say in our district, they did a lot with community outreach to make sure that people's needs were being met. Students could choose either to attend this virtual school or they could go to their home school with lots of different precautions in place. And then coming back from the pandemic, I would say the school where I taught in particularly where my sons go, they have a really large mental health focus. Uh, our counselors are excellent. We have a calming room, which is, was very atypical. That wasn't something I really heard about before the pandemic. So I definitely think student mental health is at the forefront. We have a task force that deals with that in our county. So some forward thinking there, knowing what that our students were going to need supports coming back. Yeah, I think the student mental health thing is getting hit from a lot of different angles at this point. And it, there are a lot of conflating factors, I'm sure. But the last study I saw was something to the effect of like a 15% drop in kids age 17 or age 13 to 21 or something Okay, yeah. from 2019 to 2022. And those were Canadian statistics. So it's certainly had a large impact where I don't think the social factor was quite as counted in as maybe it should have been at the start. And unfortunately, hindsight is twenty twenty. But building off of that, like you say, having those mental health resources to be doing as much as we can to catch up on the back end is where we have to start. Yeah. And I don't think as educators, we were prepared until we were kind of on those front lines seeing things um, in real time. Because I was virtual and then came back into the schools the year after, two years after the pandemic, I remember I was running a book club and my classes were always really loud and boisterous and especially during book club because kids could have a chance to kind of talk and lead their own conversation. And I was in a 10th grade class and it was like dead silence. <laughs> and these were students that weren't always super, you know, quiet. So, but, so I just thought, oh my gosh, they haven't read, like what is going on? And there was one group in particular that I knew these kids, they're my son's friends. I, you know, saw them in the neighborhood growing up. And I was like, why are you guys talking about this? Have you not read? And they were like, no, we are talking about it, Ms. Sheriff. And I was like, nobody's saying anything. And they're like, no, we're on a Google document. So they were all in a circle and they were having a book talk, but nobody was talking. They were just typing. And that was one of the measures that we had to take during COVID. The teachers who were in person would still have book talks, but so kids weren't shouting across the room, they would have them virtually. So it was an adjustment, I think, for students to realize they could kind of go back to how it was before. And at the college level, I'm, I have taught two different semesters with student success mm -hmm. courses. And I had a student this semester that told me her goal was just to leave her dorm room for a couple hours a day. And I was thinking back to when I was in school, which was a very long time ago, but you couldn't have paid me to just sit around. Like I wanted to be out doing things. And so I think that they're definitely seeing the repercussions of this at the university level as well. But, you know, there's really formative times when students went to dances and out on dates and played sports. Like those things were different. And so we're seeing some of the ramifications. Yeah, I think you have a unique perspective in that you have seen kids that are maybe three months apart in age, but sometimes three years apart in terms of responsibility or maturity level, I guess. What's the biggest thing for you when you're getting into those student success courses of making sure they're set up for success in that first year of university? Yeah, I think it's just such a huge jump from high school to college um, for students who, especially if they're moving away from home and living on campus, we have moved at, in K-12 to a student-centered classroom. So 
it's almost a no-no for a teacher to be up in front of the room instructing a class. Like if you walk into most classrooms, you might see tables that are made out of whiteboards. Students are kind of running the show, so to speak, and teachers are more like moderators. That's, you know, a pretty common classroom model. But at the university level, you'll see students that are, it's a more passive response in some courses, in, in a lecture course, obviously not like in a lab. But there might be 300, 400 students in this lecture hall. So there's nobody there to see if you're taking notes. There's nobody there to see if you're engaged. So the onus really falls to the student at that point. So I think there's just a huge design difference between K-12 in the United States and in college. I'm sure that's seen in other places around the world as well. But that, I think, is the biggest discussion I have with my students is really talking to them about learning style, time management, them, you know, for the first time, our, our students are really overscheduled for the most part. You know, they're involved in a lot of activities. Parents are making sure they're having lots of different opportunities to do different things. So when they go to college, nobody is really standing over them. They might have two hours of class and they have to figure out what they're going to do with the other 22. So I think that's one of the biggest talks like early on. The freedom is awesome for a lot of them at first. And then they quickly realize that it can get out of control unless they plan it out. A lot of adults struggle with that too. Sure. But that's a big change. I know the freedom aspect for me was while certainly what I hoped for, definitely not the thing that ultimately paid off for me in the long run because high school never really set me up for success. And I think this is a common refrain, at least from the people that I was around, is that I never really had to do much in high school in order to get the grades that I needed to to get into a university. So I never learned the study habits or the discipline that I needed in order to be able to be successful in university and ended up getting to university and frankly, falling pretty flat on my face. It turns out that what I went to university for isn't ultimately what my passion or skill set ended up being anyways. So it worked out for me. And my mom doesn't like hearing that after what she spent on my year and a half of university. But Ultimately, I think I got there in the long run. I don't think it's a straight path for a lot of students. Part of my role now is that I'm doing academic advising. So I think a lot of times we have an idea of what we want to do, and then we get in there to do it, and it's way different than what we anticipated. I finished my undergraduate degree. I had a degree in English and Spanish. I didn't want to teach. My mom was a teacher. I had no interest in teaching, but I had no career plan. So I worked on a boat, and my parents were like, we just spent, you know, however much for you to go to school for four years, and I went to work on a parasailing boat. So I think that colleges have come a long way, seeing it on the flip side now of what they do to make sure students have internships and lots of really hands-on practical experience that I don't remember having when I was in school as much. So I think that that is something that schools realize, you know, there needs to be a, a good plan for students when they leave so that they're employable and they have options. How do we help some of those students who might not be getting fostered in the traditional school system? either just because they're slightly abnormal or ahead of where they should typically be in their schooling. I'll relate this to another story for myself. I've told this story a couple of times, but I got, and this goes way back to elementary school of, I was in a split one, two class, I think. And I got so bored in my grade one class. I remember sitting at the back of the class just playing with these like it was almost like a connects like right. I don't know if you remember yeah. connects but it was this like building stuff 
And the teacher, I was like done all whatever work I was supposed to be doing and just playing with this stuff because it was extra. And then the teacher asked me to stop doing that and rejoin the class. And I did, and then ended up sitting through this lecture and got so bored while the teacher was talking. I don't know if I was supposed to be doing printing or what it was or basic math problems, but I ended up getting so bored that I sat at my desk and cut my pants clean off. <laughs> I didn't like cut holes in my pants or yeah. just snip things up. Yeah. I cut my pants clean off <laughs> and distinctly remember Can my mother that. showing up to take me home at recess. And I keep coming back to that as a core memory because I think there are just some kids who aren't being served properly. And that's why I get so excited about some of the stuff that I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit about alternative education and what we can be doing to more foster some of the people who maybe aren't best served in a traditional learning environment. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely think those are conversations that are happening all over the place. Like you mentioned earlier, I'm in an EBD program and Primarily, the difference between an EDD and a PhD is we're practitioners. So most of my program, you know, the people that are in there are principals or superintendents or superintendents. So they're they're on the ground doing the work. And and we often talk about what is school going to look like in a decade or two decades or three decades. And I think we're starting to see some of those differences, especially at the secondary level. Trade schools, I feel like kind of had a stigma when I was in high school. You went to trade school if you weren't doing well academically. And in some countries like Germany, right, like students decide in eighth grade, are they going to go university route? Are they going to go uh, more towards the trade? But what we're seeing is a lot of students, like my nephew, for example, he's in an auto tech program. So he does that three blocks a day and he takes AP classes the other four or whatever blocks he has. So I think we're seeing that students can have lots of versatility and still be successful. So I know like in our county, a lot of students, there's like a culinary school, students can get their CNA, they do their EMT. There's an academic college program where they can actually do their associate's degree while they're in high school. So then college is not as big of an expense when they go to get a bachelor's degree. So I think schools, especially at the secondary level, are kind of rethinking what this looks like. Obviously, this was in response to the dropout rate that was, you know, surging as we moved into the 80s and things like that. So they were looking at ways to ensure that students were staying in school and trying to meet them where they were. I think the pandemic lit a fire that people did not have to go to school in a traditional sense at all, and they could be okay as well. Homeschooling took a massive, massive surge, right? Like I think it was up to like 80 some percent. I mean, it was like the highest it had ever been, especially here. I'm in Virginia. And as I mentioned, we have five kids, so we could not all be online at the same time. So we kind of did things differently. There was an alternative program. It was some teachers out of Harvard that were kicking something off during the pandemic. So one of my sons joined that cohort. Another one we homeschooled just with like pedaling, <laughs> cobbling together tutors to work with them. The other stayed in the traditional school that was online. But those were things that we would have never done had there not been a pandemic. But we started to see that there, you know, we were five different boys that all learned very differently. And um, because we're both educators, we could say like, all right, let's try some different things. And actually, one of my sons skipped a grade during the pandemic. He ended up going back into school in the private school system. The public school uh, here in the States won't let you skip, but they would in the private school. So much like you just talked about, he skipped that grade and was able to keep going. So I think school can be pretty stringent the way it's set up right now, um, but people are pushing the envelope with that. And I think we'll see more of that as time moves on. So, What's the biggest takeaway you had from five different kids learning five different ways yeah, I, yeah, I think it's just like a a smaller model of the fact that instruction needs to be differentiated, right? And in a traditional classroom, it's almost impossible. If you have 25 students 
in, in a perfect world, when you're going to all these classes and they're talking about pedagogy, you're supposed to have 25 different lessons for those students, which maybe it's possible if those are only 25, but then another 25 come in and then another 25. So most of us had 150 English students. So differentiating 150 lessons, not practical. I mean, so I know like in our small tutoring model that we use for my tutoring company, we've been able to work with students in a small group model and just, just to see how much you can actually move the needle when there are a smaller group of kids with individualized instruction from a teacher. And that's just not something that is the setup of our traditional public school system right now. But I think a lot of people are starting to realize that there are other options. Yeah, so I, I'm interested to see where it goes. What's the number one thing that parents should be thinking about when it comes to hiring a tutor? Hiring a tutor? I think the student has to connect with them. I think if the student does not feel comfortable with them or if it, they're not able to ask questions, if it's like a one-way conversation, that, those are some red flags for me. So I think a, a student should want to go for, for as, you know, as much of that as possible. It's hard to be excited about algebra or even writing or any of those things. But I think if they... If they feel comfortable and if they are willing to participate, I think that's a huge indicator that things are going well. I think if they are really reluctant, that's usually a red flag a little bit. Yeah, not that these are entirely related, but I know the meta-analysis mm -hmm. of therapy says that the number one factor in terms of success in a therapy practice is the relationship 100%. between yeah. the therapist and the, and yeah. the patient. So. Yeah, I, I definitely, totally I mean, sense. I think that's the same in any classroom, any small tutoring environment. If a student doesn't feel comfortable, they're not going to really be able to learn. They have to feel safe and they have to feel that they can grow themselves or else, you know, it's gonna, they're going to kind of stay where they are, I believe. It's interesting that you talk through the sort of K-12 to moving towards sort of being more student-led instead of teacher-led. Right. And I know one of my favorite private education companies that's moving into this is called Acton Academy. I don't okay. know how familiar you are. I, I think I read about them uh, earlier this week. I was kind of looking at some of the private ones, and I do remember that being on the list. Yeah. And what they're doing essentially is really taking that to its extreme in that the teacher who I think they call a guide is not actually even allowed to answer student questions. And they group the students by cohort. So they're based they're like three to four year cohorts and they tell you here teach each other and from all the research that i've done it looks quite promising to the point where it's definitely on the top of my list in terms of even relocating from where we are now to be able to potentially send our kids to a school like that but it's encouraging to know that the public school education is moving that direction as well yeah i mean Education moves at a glacier speed, like, it, like the federal government, right? Like everything is kind of slow. And I think that's why I know one thing I think we we're going to talk about is AI, just to see the response to AI in a public school setting, K-12 versus now being at a university level and seeing their response. Universities are able, I think, to have a little bit more movement with cutting edge things, especially if it's a research institute. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there are definitely programs, small group, different companies that are kind of pushing the needle with education. There was one I was looking at this week. I sent it to a tutor of mine. She was recently laid off. She is a professional writer. And this is a company called Beacon, but they basically, they hire teachers to go live with families all around the world. So they might live on a boat with this family for six months and teach their kids, but they provide, you know, they tell you what type of curriculum they want. 
and they're hiring custom teachers, which I think is a really interesting concept as well. It kind of puts the parents in the role of figuring out exactly what that education is going to look like. It's hard, right? Because the problem with all of these individualized teaching methods is scale. How do we get these to the kids? It's great for the people that can, one, afford to do all this, have the resources to do all that. But how do we make sure that as we begin to implement these programs, we're distilling this new knowledge that we're discovering of better teaching methods and hopefully directing it to the right people who can see it and help scale it out further beyond the... That's a really good question. I think for me, it comes full circle back to teacher education programs. So while I was in the classroom, I always had student teachers and some of the best teacher ed programs. James Madison University is one here in Virginia. They have they were a teaching school and they've now moved into a much larger university. But my student teachers from there always seem to kind of be on the up and up and have uh, best practices. I know our superintendent traveled to Finland to observe their school system that performs very well and kind of looked at, you know, what their methodology was. So I I definitely think education is the key in terms of, you know, right now we're in a crisis that we're having trouble even finding people to leave. But these school systems who are trying these new methods and looking at education through a trauma-informed lens, looking at the student first, looking at the relationship first, all those things I think are, are going to be what makes the difference. But it does take time, like you said, and unfortunately it seems to be the school's that have resources that those things seem to kind of move a little bit quicker. You mentioned having a hard time finding people to teach. If right. we were to put Megan in in charge of something like Teach for America, what are we doing to get more teachers in the door? Yeah, I think most teachers, if you were to ask them, or most student teachers would say they are a teacher because they have a teacher who inspired them. So I think it is reminding students they, you know, being a teacher, you have such a huge impact on the society that you are living in. And there are a few jobs that you walk into Walmart and people who just saw you five minutes ago are like, oh, shit, that's right. Like my boys are like, gosh, mom, just go, keep going. Like, just we don't go somewhere. And they, you know, I'd be somebody I taught online or somebody I taught five years ago, or they know my husband or first of all for him or whatever. But there are very few jobs, I think, where you can have that kind of reach and that kind of impact. And I think that those are things that are important. And I think for someone who's in a Teach for America or a Peace Corps, those are our empaths. Those are the people who want to do good in their community. And we good teachers right now. We need people who are going to be there through this transition, which I know it is hard for a lot of teachers, myself included. So, I mean, it's a, it's a tough spot to be in right now for a lot of schools. The teachers are, teachers are going through it at this point. It's, it's tricky. Brought up AI a couple of times. What is something that you're excited about on the forefront of something that you're using or something that you're seeing as being readily available to be an immediate impact driver in some of the areas that you're teaching? Yeah. So I think at first when AI came out as an English teacher, we saw it as, oh my gosh, all the kids are cheating with it, right? With chat GPT. But then I really started thinking about it and I'm not a math person, but I'm sure when the calculator came out that that was the same response. So I looked it up with my students. I was like, let's check this out. Let's see what the response was. And in fact, when the calculator did come out in the 70s, people were like, oh, kids are never going to know math again. They don't know how to memorize. They don't know how to do all these things. And obviously, where would we be without calculators now? So I think AI is a tool. I think it can't replace education. And I think that's the difference between AI in formative years versus AI with college students. 
if students are using it to replace their own writing, then they're skipping the step. They're not learning, right? But I think AI is an awesome tool for organization. It's an awesome tool for executive functioning. Students who really have trouble organizing their ideas or where they're going to go uh, with a paper or an argument or wherever, whatever it is that they're working on, AI can help them do that. Now, when it comes to actually writing, that's where students need to do the work. And that's what I tell them. AI is voiceless. It doesn't have a soul. I, could, I obviously can't pick all of it out, but a few times that I've said to a student, hey, I, I don't think this is your writing. This feels like it's, you know, computer generated they have said yeah i used a bot or i used you know there's all these different tools now they find all the stuff but it doesn't have that voice and it's perfect there's not a single grammatical mistake so uh, i just remind students that it's there to help them it's there to guide them in terms of like pre-writing or maybe even like a grammarly where they're checking things on the back end it shouldn't replace the learning though but i think that there's i think ai is going to be boundless in terms of what we can do especially with writing i, I don't think it will replace that i, I think that's a human art but i think it like, can help us Absolutely. I think for me in my day to day, I heard this talked about somewhere else, but the idea of it's sort of a 10, 80, 10 principle. Right. So you have to start with the 10% of your own knowledge. How do you get it to organize your thoughts in the way that you want it to complete the task that you give it? Mm -hmm. It does the 80% of the bulk as the tool in the middle. And then you do the final 10% at the end, making sure that what comes out is what you're happy with. So going back to that first 10%, how do we work on making sure that we're teaching kids to think now that we have this new tool and this genie is not going back in the lamp? Right. How do we teach them to think versus teach them how to do yeah, and I know I mean, this has been a thing in education forever. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's teaching them different ways to do it. Right. So like you could model them doing it on their own. Right. So them doing like the obviously writing as an example. So like brainstorming, pre-writing, drafting, editing, revising. Right. So have them do it. Then have them do your 10, 80, 10 and see what the difference is. Right. Like do that compare contrast. Like what did AI do that you didn't? What did you do that AI couldn't do? Right. So that's really that critical thinking of how close are they? Which one's better? Right. Which one's has aspects that are not as good, right? So I think if they, if they're able to do it and then they're able to make that comparison, I think that illustration might help them see some of the benefits and some of the flaws of AI. I just read that I think it's like half of educational admissions offices are using AI to screen applicants, which I thought was fascinating because of we uh, use the common app, right? So students now, it used to be like if you applied to NYU and you applied to University of Virginia and you applied to Kentucky, you had to like individually fill out an application for each one. Well, now with the common app, it's like click, 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 do their supplemental essays and it's on their way. So they've just had such an influx, admissions offices, such an influx of applications. I know my oldest son just accepted, he's going to James Madison University, but they had 40,000 applicants. They had 21,000 applicants two years ago. So that's a massive uptick. So I thought that was really interesting that they've already harnessed AI to try to figure out how they can kind of deal with those numbers. That's fascinating. Gets into a, like a little bit of an ethical issue. I don't know how all that works, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, I don't know if it's a ethical issue on the back end or I think that just opens up so many different pathways and maybe I'm getting this wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Are kids using some of these new tools to be able to fill out additional 
applications at a higher speed, and that's why they're... No, I don't think so. The common app is just one singular application. So you can... Not all schools use the common app, but like some of the Ivy League schools, they have their own separate protocol. But like the common app, for example, here in Virginia, a student could use that and then use it for James Madison, UVA, like, you know, 10 different schools. They don't need AI to fill it out. Now, I'm sure there are students who are using AI for their application essays, which is a whole other issue where when my students ask me about that, I'm like, they're going to be able, I mean, I don't know. And I know in the high school level, we had like detection software where we'll say... 80% 80% suggested that this was machine written. So I always just told my students I would steer clear of all that. And plus, this is their one chance to really paint their picture of who they are. Why do you want AI to write that for you? But I did think it was really interesting to see that that stat came out in the news a few weeks ago that the admissions committees were using or mission offices were using them just because they had such large numbers. And I think a lot of the... You posted a article a couple weeks ago with the temperature of how educators are feeling about it in classrooms. And we're still half of educators, I think 47% of educators are pessimistic and only a quarter or like 27% or something are optimistic in terms of how it's going to be used. Not that we have to change their minds, because I think we've already established this generation's version of the calculator. But Outside of demonstrating its abilities, is there anything that you're thinking about in terms of when you're having these conversations with other educators, how you can be, maybe evangelizing is the wrong word, but how you can be excited about some of these tools that are coming out? Right. Well, I'm laughing. I'm envisioning my colleague for high school saying, oh, she's turned to the dark side. Because I will say when it came out (laughs) at high school level, it was like red alert. It was like the wild, wild west with students turning in all these essays that were clearly plagiarized. So I, I think it's like anything. I think when something's new, it, it just feels, you know, it's it's scary, right? Like it's, it, a lot of us have been doing this for a long time and we had our tried and true ways and then they didn't work anymore. Some teachers reverted to kids closing their Chromebooks and they did everything by hand. Well, students who haven't written by hand by for five years and you're trying to read their essays, that was more of a nightmare for me than AI. So, I mean, I think it's one of those, yeah, I mean, it was a disaster. So I think it's one of those things that there are definite pluses, but there are also drawbacks. So I think when I'm talking with students, uh, whether it be at the high school level, whether it be the students that I tutor, whether it be students at the university level, I mean, their work is a representation of who they are. So I am not an artist. I cannot draw at all. But when um, AI really became like kind of this combative thing, we did a creative writing exercise in my, I taught math com journalism class. And we took these, their favorite lines from a, a text that they read and they had AI generate the drawing and the drawings were so weird. Like, I mean, like people would have like <laughs> seven toes. One guy would be like missing part of his arm, but it'd be coming out of his shoulder because AI, I mean, it just like morphs these things and they're like, and some of them were really cool, but for the most part, they were really weird. And so I think it was a good visual for them that like, just because AI can do it, doesn't mean it's necessarily done well. And so I think that is kind of the takeaway that you know, their writing is a reflection, especially in a college essay, is a reflection of who they are. So if you're applying to these schools and you're trying to show that you'd be a great person on their campus, why on earth would you want a machine to write that for you, right? Like that should come from you. So I think it's just having those conversations about being your authentic self. AI can be a tool to help you organize your ideas that you should be writing, I think, at the end of the day. Talk to me about the importance of free writing as an exercise. Yeah, I love free writing. I, I definitely, I think one of the benefits of our tutoring company is we work with students starting in fourth grade. 
fourth graders are so cool. They're, I mean, they're so quirky and they do lots of weird things, like make all the text blue and size 29 font and things like that. <laughs> they're uninhibited, right? Like you give them a weird prompt and they go to town with it. And somewhere around like seventh grade, students start to get very insecure. Like they don't know if they're writing good. They worry about grammar. So I think having students write and not judging them on mechanics or grammar or vocab and just really looking for the ideas behind the writing is what makes students strong writers. And for apprehensive writers now, like there's a talk to text function on every Chromebook. I tell them, just mute your mic if we're on Google Meet. And I'm like, just talk, just tell me the story. And it's ridiculously like plagued with errors, but then they kind of learn those editing skills to go back through. So I think rewriting is important. I think it helps them have like that stream of consciousness. It helps them not overthink things. Our students are, for the most part, the populations of students I work with are very conscientious of grades and marks and, you know, doing the best and so with the tutoring we do, there are no grades. So it's really an opportunity for them to just write authentically and free writing is a huge part of that. I think a lot of my best writing or some of my best ideas come out of the practice of free writing. And it's weird. I have this love-hate relationship with writing that goes all the way back to grade school. And perhaps this is another jumping off point. But I went to school for engineering because I hated all of my writing, all the way through grade school. Hayden Engineering left that, started doing creative esports writing of all things, so professional video games, and was just writing for a, started out writing for a company called Collegiate Star League, which was a bunch of university students all competing against each other in video games. And I found something that I actually cared to write about. And then over time now, I would say probably 80 to 90% of what I do on a day-to-day basis, whether it's in marketing, whether it's directly copywriting or having conversations with people, it's all a result of writing. And then on top of that, I write the newsletter every week and all of my writing function helps me to better be able to articulate myself when I have conversations like this. So going back to that free writing as an exercise and Maybe beyond that, making sure that we're encouraging students to find things that they enjoy writing about when they're younger, because I think, especially for me in high school, it really sapped any of the love that I didn't even know that I had out of writing or reading at that point in my life. So Yeah, well, I'm definitely older than you, but I know when I was a kid, we did these prompts and it wasn't until I started teaching that I didn't even know what a prompt was. And so when I got to my English classes at university level and I had to go work with these students in this little rural area and they're like well don't forget to bring the prompts and I'm like what's a prompt and they were like that's where you tell them you give them a question of what to write about and I was like you don't just write about what you want to write about and so I realized at that point my teachers I had really really great English teachers and I think they had given us this incredible gift that we had to come up with our own topic and so I don't know where that kind of got lost along the way I know we encourage students to do something called like text mining where they go back in through their journals and find like a cool line and make that like the first line of a story and things like that. But for the most part, our students respond to prompts. So when they just have to write, they freeze. Like they are like analysis by paralysis. They don't know what to write about. So that is something that we use a lot in our creative writing classes with our younger students. It's just write about what you want to write about. Like write about like the, what the guy uh, for lunch next to you today and why it was disgusting. And some of those stories are the funniest stories and you really hear their voice. So I, I definitely think that, that that is critical. It's like voice and choice is a major part of, you know, not only writing, but enjoying what you're writing as well. 
for sure. Not to turn this into a venting session, but I remember my grade 10 culminating project for English. And the objective was to, I think, critically analyze a ballad mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. And at this point, I'm just miserable in English class. And right. I'm like, okay, how can I at least try to make this fun for myself? So thinking a little bit outside of the box, I think I chose Mockingbird by Eminem as a ballad. Yeah. So not the most traditional ballad, but then critically analyzed it. And unfortunately for me, my thinking outside the box didn't really help for my existing English teacher. Right. But I did have it independently graded outside of that because I was so frustrated at the time that I ended up getting a friend's mom or something who is also an English teacher yeah. to take a look at it and like, give validate me a, this. This a, a partial <laughs> like independent assessment of like right. I thought I did really good on this thing right. and I still got like a 78 and yeah. this is yeah. so yeah I think really not to tattle on the teachers but finding a way to make sure we're preserving the love that the kids have for their independence and thinking outside the box, even if it's not traditionally what fit into the rubric. Right. And I think that's the other piece is that once we started teaching writing with rubrics, while there's benefit for that, quite honestly, for the teacher, there's not a lot of benefit in it for the student. I mean, it does point to what they need to work on. But I know I mentioned before, our teachers would give us these papers back that were like filled with notes and things like that. And Mm. I mean, I, I think the best practice that I implemented the last five years, I taught international baccalaureate classes a master teacher at the school where I just left, she practiced something called rewrite to mastery. So they were never done. They could rewrite up until like the last week before the quarter ended. And when I gave students that option, the ball was really in their court. Like, hey, you know, this is how the IB is going to grade this. And this is kind of the analytical piece you need to do. But you can redo it as many times as you want until you're happy with where you are. So I think that that is more realistic to like real world writing. You don't write something once for your job and turn it in and that's it, right? Like it goes through like multiple iterations. And that's the piece I think that's missing from school is like we aren't able to like necessarily always give authentic writing assignments because it's just a time and a numbers thing, kind of like what we talked about before. But yeah, I think teachers try to find workarounds with that and and neat ways to make sure that they're able to give that feedback to the kids, even though there might be a, a county or a state rubric involved somewhere. What's one thing about schools that nobody's talking about that they should be? That's a really tough question. I think that this is, a sticking point I have from the pandemic. I think there's a lot of wasted time during a school day. So I say that as a mom to three sons and two stepsons, that they would come home from school and they have sat for most of the day. So we move to block scheduling, you know, as a state and then as a nation, like most schools are on a block schedule. My youngest son is applying to go to actually the, a Catholic military school. He asked if he could apply to it. I asked him why. And a bunch of his friends go there. They're very, it's a very athletic school. But he said they're on a seven period day. They're in class for 50 minutes. They're outside for two blocks a day. And that was really appealing to him. And I think, and I, not to stereotype, but boys and girls at different ages of development learn differently. And I think school was designed, like when I walk by a classroom and the class is in rows, everyone's sitting there. I'm miserable looking at them and I'm 46 years old. So I know if I'm a 16 year old boy sitting in there for 90 minutes, and then going to another class for 90 minutes, and then going to another class for 90 minutes. That's not that's not why we created those block schedules. Students were supposed to be moving a lot during them. There's supposed to be like stations. And that's not necessarily what's happening in a lot of places. 
part of that's because of classroom size, part of that was because of COVID, part of it's because of people getting acclimated post-COVID. So I think the pandemic taught us that we can do a lot more with less. The school day was shortened. A lot of school days did like a wellness Wednesday where they only went in if they needed tutoring. So students are in school a lot longer than the traditional school day because they're on their Chromebooks and they're in study groups and they're meeting with their teacher, you know, they're Zooming for different clubs and that. So I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is that I don't think our students necessarily need to be sitting in school from 30 until 3.30 every day. I think, you know, these alternative schools that you're talking about are onto something. There's forest schools and different places where they're getting kids outside. Our principal was a proponent of that. Our students could go outside during the pandemic. And a lot of teachers kept up with that and did like outside classrooms and, you know, really kept that movement piece involved. But there's there's too much sitting. I think that's the biggest thing. And that's where that boredom, that's when the kids are cutting their pants. Right? <laughs> that's where that happens. So. Yeah. And you know this for sure as a mom of five boys, but we're seeing that in educational outcomes for boys now too, right? Mm-hmm. I think the numbers that, women are going to be graduating from university at oh, twice sure. the rate of yep. men in mm-hmm. a decade from now. So finding a way to, and I have no, I am not smart enough to know what the answer to this one is, but finding a way to set up these classrooms or classes or schedules in such a way that we can be cognizant of, like you said, it's tough because Education was set up 100 years ago at a time when people needed to have their kids somewhere for eight hours a day. And now we talked about it. You work from home. I work from home. Like there is other opportunities for there to be a four hour school day. And then somehow this parent looks after that. And then so I think we're just everything is on the fly. And I think we're in the middle of the adjustment period and it's painful at this point for some of us who are paying attention to this problem right or not problem necessarily problem but i think on the other side of it there's a lot of stuff to be excited about or encouraged about yeah and i think that's where it gets tricky because i think part of the teacher crisis we're seeing is that the onus is being placed on educator to figure it out right like figure out what to do with these students, when you have all these students with different needs, you might not have a paraprofessional to help you. They need to move, right? So a lot, I mean, that walk break was like the best thing ever. Like when we came back from COVID, like they, you know, said, do these brain breaks, have them go walk, you know? And I mean, we just saw students when they come back after being 10 minutes outside in the sunshine. I mean, they're like completely different people. So I think we learned a lot from the pandemic. And then I think a lot of schools just went back to right how it was before. And that's the part that's tricky because I'm like, oh, but what about all this stuff where we learned online and then kids could go home and, you know, like all these different great takeaways. And some families, like you said, decided just to go in a different direction. But a lot of our schooling kind of just went back to how it was before the pandemic, which I think there's some lost lessons there. One other thing that I know we wanted to chat about is the sort of pros and cons or usefulness of post-secondary education as it results in today's job market. Right. And I learned last week on the podcast that there is about 50 to 60 million underemployed Americans, Uh which is someone who has a college degree and is working as a barista or working serving. So how do we square the circle of continuing education being important 
but knowing that one, the cost of it may not be worth the outcome anymore. And two, employers are beginning to move away from degrees as a filtering mechanism. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a couple of different options. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to like educating yourself on what's best for you and for your family. I mean, there was an old statistic. I looked it up today because I was curious before we met that I just saw it. It said that the average college graduate will make over a million dollars more than someone who finishes just a high school degree. So over a lifetime. But I'm curious to see what that stat will look like, you know, a decade from now. There are a lot of programs and degrees that you can do the same thing with an associate as you can with a bachelor's degree. So I think having those conversations with students, if they want to go into some type of medical field where maybe it just requires an associate, do they want to have that traditional college experience where they're living in a dorm and doing all those things? Or are they just going to school to get the education? Well, then I think it's having a conversation to weigh the pros and cons. Is community college the best option? Our schools have reciprocity with our universities. So a lot of students where it's a financial concern We'll start at the community college level and then move up into a four-year program to finish off. So that's a pretty popular route. Um, my oldest stepson went to college for about two months and decided he went to community college and was like, I hated high school. I don't know why I thought I would like this. And and just said, it's not for me. And then kind of bounced around and worked at a ski resort and was kind of like figuring it out. And now he's a corrections officer. He'll probably end up going back and getting a degree. He's 21. So he you know took a few years. So I think there's not necessarily like a straight path for students. And I think that that is something that schools are starting to to realize and to educate students that there are lots of different options. I had an assistant principal that said, you we don't care what you do, but you have to be one of the three E's. So it was educated, enlisted, or employed. And those were his three goals when you graduated. Like if you were if you were doing one of the E's, you were okay. So I think that there are like definitely choices for students. My other stepson wanted to go to school at App State in North Carolina. It's expensive, out of state with five kids. He joined the uh, National Guard in North Carolina, so it paid his room and board. So, I mean, I definitely think it's just having students meet with that career counselor, looking at the option. It's not a one-size-fits-all for students, just like K-12 isn't. I mean, there are lots of different routes. So I think it's kind of weighing all your options and seeing what's there and a lot of students are doing a gap year. I had two students last year that took a gap year and they said it was the best thing ever and they realized school was for them. So I think it's a personal choice in a lot of ways. What are you, and maybe this is just sort of baked into the pie for you, so maybe extrapolating to other people, what are some things that we can be doing to improve student or young person agency as it comes to making some of these choices, whether they want to go off to university or pick a different program or build a different skill set. Yeah. I mean, I think like anything, it's about exposure, right? So, and, and that could be an equity issue too, if students don't have the opportunity to have exposures to different careers and different opportunities. But I know, I mean, just speaking personally, like my middle son, he thought he had an interest in law enforcement. So like for two summers, he did this like local sheriff's academy. And then he's like, yeah. right. But it's way better for him to figure that out when he's 15 than when after he's paid for four years of school, right? So I think exposure to things is a huge part of it. A lot of schools are implementing internships at the high school level. There's like teacher preparation programs now in high school. I mean, I've had student teachers that have decided at the 11th hour, they don't want to be a teacher anymore, which is fine. I mean, they're going to graduate. They'll do something different. But I think the earlier students have exposure to different opportunities, the better. 
I know for our dissertation, we're working with a federal law enforcement agency. And, and a big part of federal law enforcement is that they are doing more within the communities so that students know, hey, you can join these different agencies. You don't just have to be a special agent. You can be an accountant. You can be an engineer. You can be, you know, a data analyst. So I think students only know what they know. So when they have opportunities to see what's out there, that's going to help them realize that they have different choices. If I was to ask you for a memory of your career so far, favorite memory of your career so far, what's something that comes to mind? Oh, gosh. So many. I would say, I don't know, there's a tie, but I'll, I'll pick one of them. So I have a student who is now a doctor. She was at my first high school I taught at. I was 21 years old. I did not have a teaching degree. I had a provisional license, and I knew nothing about teaching. I cried like every day for a couple of years. And this school was tough. We had 83 languages spoken. We had a major influx of gang issues. We were right outside on on the Washington, D.C. border. And our students worked hard that came to school and, and took school seriously. And this student in particular came from Africa. Her <clears throat> uncle moved over and she came shortly after. And when she got here, she got really sick and she needed a transplant. And I taught journalism at the time. And my students were like, hey, let's like have a fundraiser. And I was like, all right, I don't know how to do this. But we had a um, rap battle, which <laughs> was not prepared for all the cussing that was going to happen really quickly. It was a freestyle competition. Thankfully, they spoke faster than me, but her students it. But they raised a lot of money. I mean, it was like year two, 2001, I think, was when like maybe 2002. And they raised enough for her cousin to come over. And she had a kidney. She ended up having a kidney transplant. He ended up staying in the state. And my favorite thing is to see her on Facebook. I mean, she's a mom now. She's in her, you know, late 20s, maybe early 30s. I went to her wedding. And it's so cool to see, like, what she was able to kind of persevere through without her parents living in the States, being so ill as a young person, and then just doing so well and becoming a doctor. And I think, I mean, there are so many of my students that I'm so proud of, but she's one that really stands out because they were very tolerant of me because I'm sure I was a terrible teacher that I... I don't be cared, but I don't know that I know very much about teaching at all. But yeah, she she's my. Well, if there was one story to relate back to, how do we get more teachers into teaching? That might be the story. Rap battles, fundraisers, and attending the and weddings of your students yeah. 10 years on. Yeah. Megan Sheriff, if people want yeah. to find your stuff, where should we send them? So our website is www dot smart or smart solution va.com sorry and then facebook we're smart solutions tutoring llc richmond awesome i appreciate you and uh it's been a very enlightening hour of conversation and i'm very encouraged to know that the direction that the education system even from everything that we've been told is moving in the right direction shall we say i hope so thank you